I was really enjoyed the coaching, but I think the more I coach and the more I watch, the more I sort of realise that oh, I just still just really love sailing. You know, it was actually the um, Sail GP Kiwi team had a women's trials, and that was sort of the first time I actually jumped back in a boat, which was a wasp, just to do some sailing, you know, for me. And sort of after a few days, I was like, oh, I'm actually not that bad. I still can still do this. I enjoyed a lot of it, but I think pretty quickly I did, I did find myself looking out the window a lot. You know, we had pretty good views of, of, the, of the sea out the window and I would just often be looking out and going, oh, it's quite good, you know, could be out there sailing, could be out there winging, could be out there doing something. I definitely found that part hard. I've definitely realised through it that, you know, me being inside in an office every day is just probably not the right thing for me. It was something that I never really cottoned on to until probably a year and a half after I stopped sailing was the fact that I'd probably just been under eating for three, four years. You know, what I considered normal was actually very unhealthy. And I think it took a it took a doctor saying, you eat like a, a 50 year old man with a heart disease and yet you're exercising every day. Your health is never going to change while you're doing this. Jo Alley always maintained she hadn't retired when she stepped away from top level sailing after the 2016 Rio Olympics. But it was still a surprise in some circles when she announced earlier this year she was targeting a third Olympic medal in Paris. Rather than do it in the 470, the boat in which she and Polly Powery excelled for so long, Joe has taken up a fresh challenge and jumped in a 49FX with fellow Rio medalist Molly Meach. Joe talks in this podcast about what drew her back to the top level of the sport, what it has been like trying to master a new boat and form a new partnership what it will take for the pair of them to win a medal at the 2024 Paris Olympics, and how she will deal with expectations. She also delves into how she coped with the last five years, when she combined office work with coaching, and talks about what she's trying to achieve in her role as chair of World Sailing's Athletes Commission. One of the more important conversations we had was around the struggles Joe had with her health during her Rio campaign, and how she approaches that part of her life now which could be valuable for any young sailor, parent, or coach. Joe is thoughtful, engaging, and honest, and clearly driven to get to the top of international sailing once again. It's going to be fascinating to watch her progress with Molly Meach over the next couple of years in the 49FX, but also as members of Live Ocean Racing to compete in this year's ETF 26 Grand Prix series. Just a quick note to let you know this interview was done before she flew out of the country about 10 days ago, but we managed to talk about live ocean racing and the impact it will have on bridging the gap in professional sailing for females. Well, joining us on the show today is Joe Allay. Welcome. Thank you. 
Now, it might feel to regular listeners that we're going through the list of previous guests again because we had Peter Burling and Blair Chuk on last time, and of course they were the very first guests on Broadreach Radio. And Joe was involved in episode two alongside Polly Powery. But there's a very good reason we've got Joe on today because so much has changed since she was on on the podcast two years ago. The most recent news was this week's announcement of Live Ocean Racing, a New Zealand team to compete in various events over the coming years, starting with a team of mostly women to compete in the EFT26 Grand Prix series, which gets underway this weekend in France. So Joe was named as part of this team alongside skipper Liv Mackay, Molly Meach, Alex Maloney and Erica Dawson, with Jason Saunders as coach. Firstly, Joe, how significant is this development for you and, um, more broadly speaking, for women sailing? I mean, I just think it's a great starting point. You know, there's been so much conversation and sort of it's been quite highlighted in the last few years around that lack of experience and pathways for women in sailing. So I guess it's just really exciting to see, I mean, first of all, live ocean racing actually kicking off. You know, I think the boys are doing an amazing job and this is something that can, it's really got legs, you know, it, it can go a long way. I think more impressive for me is that it's kicking off with a women's pathway program. You know, it's, it's something different and I don't think it's really been done before and it's going to have, well, hopefully huge positive repercussions for, for the sport as a whole. So tell us about the EFT 26 series and, and how it will work. Yeah. So the ETF is a small sort of well, 26 foot foiling catamaran. I don't think it foils upward, but it does downward. And there's a basically French-based circuit. And obviously, I've never sailed one before, so it's going to be pretty exciting and a, a really good learning curve for all of us. And I guess it's it's just meant to be sort of that first step into, say, you know, your GC circuits and I guess ultimately into sail GP. And that, you know, foiling catamaran experience is something that a lot of us are lacking. You know, some of us have sailed NACRAs and the smaller boats, but... In terms of you know the more teamwork aspects of having four people on a boat at least and just the higher speeds it's going to be an awesome learning curve and what's your role going to be on the boat um so i'm not actually sure what our roles are going to be yet i think we're going to mix it around a bit like it's about developing all of us in the team in terms of our skill sets um and obviously those are we'd be partly based on strength and what we can handle on the boat as well so it's going to be, you know, a year of figuring it out. And I think that's sort of the beauty of it is that no one's ever sailed these boats four up even. And so as girls, you know, we need to sail it four up. We can't just have three of us. We're just not heavy enough or strong enough. So, yeah, it's going to be quite a learning curve and just seeing how we can, you know, work together to, to get the most out of the boat and to be competitive because that is obviously the goal. And what are you looking forward to the most with live ocean racing? I mean, the, to have an association with live ocean and it means a lot to me as it does to everyone else. You know, we, we spend every day on the ocean and, you know, their commitment is to look after the ocean and to do what they can to make a difference. So I think it, it's really nice to actually, you know, the racing and the sailing side of it is brilliant, but also to be doing it for a greater purpose, I think means a lot, you know, using sport as, you know, as a platform for, for taking those messages forward i think it's something yeah i'm really excited about so where do you see this taking you and your sailing like is is the women's america's cup for example on your radar i mean honestly you know within sailing i've been i've been around a little while now i've done a lot of different things and 
there's been a lot of a lot of ups and downs, and you sort of you better let it for so long. You sort of don't really believe that any more of these opportunities are going to happen or are going to be possible. And so I guess I take it all with a grain of salt now. I'm you know I'm hopeful that you know there will be some opportunities and there's more to do, but I will sort of take them as they come and knowing that you know I've got control of my own sailing and I'm doing stuff that I enjoy and I hope that some opportunities will present but I'm not sort of counting on them and I think anything that happens is, is a bit of a bonus. Well I guess one of the biggest considerations for you is how this complements your Olympic sailing and that's really the main thing I'd like to talk to you about today. You announced earlier this year you were back returning to Olympic campaigning after a five-year break. You know what brought you back? Yeah, it was it was a really interesting process to sort of you know go from well I'd done twelve years of, of full time Olympic campaigning and finishing with those you know two successful campaigns with Polly to sort of step away and yeah end up coaching which was was a really good sort of sidestep I think something where I could use a lot of the skills and knowledge I had and try to pass those on and still be involved with the same people in the same circuit and and involved in that same community. And I was really enjoyed the coaching, but I think the more I coach and the more I watch, the more I sort of realise that oh, I just still just really love sailing. You know, it was actually the um, Sail GP Kiwi team had a women's trials, I think February, what was that, 2020. And that was sort of the first time I actually jumped back in a boat, which was a wasp, just to do some sailing, you know, for me and to actually to see if I could sail again. And sort of after a few days, I was like, oh, I'm actually not that bad. I, have, I still I can still do this. And I, that it just sort of, I guess, sparked something off again and that I had so much fun on the water that that's what I wanted to be doing. And so I was obviously still coaching through to the games with Mike and Erica. But I guess in the background, I started doing a little bit more sailing for myself. So I, I jumped in the FX uh, would have been over a year ago now just to do a few sales to see you know if I liked it if I thought I could do it um and yeah I guess I sort of got hooked again because you were quite careful to say throughout those five years that you hadn't retired you know deep down though did you really think you would come back and compete again at the highest level because looking through some of your blog posts um you know there's one from 2019 and you said you'd no interest at all in campaigning again in the near future yeah and i think i guess the reason i don't want to retire is i always feel retirement's a bit sort of black and white you know i've never felt like i'm fully done but i definitely was not in a place to campaign for a few years and yeah it wasn't till sort of 2020 2021 really that I thought, oh, actually, you know, maybe I do have the energy required and I do have the that drive and that passion again to do it. So there was definitely a few years of, of having no interest in it. And I guess that's where I was lucky. I had the coaching to sort of keep me involved and keep me learning and, you know, keep me around the sport. But it's not in the 470, is it? The boat in which you were such a force with Polly Power. You know, you won those two Olympic medals and a world title. You two were female world sailors of the year so so why the 49er fx and not the 470 yeah so i actually did jump back in the 470 um last year for the nationals you know i hadn't sailed the boat for four years and i jumped in with andre one of the young guys and you know my first jive was, was pretty mint so i was like oh okay you know i still got this <laughs> this is still pretty easy 
And we did the nationals. It was good fun. But I was sort of going winging after sailing as well. And I sort of found the winging a bit more fun. So I was like, okay, I, I know the 470 is there. But I guess the the learning aspect was not quite there. You know, I've sort of, I've been through eight years of that boat. I've sailed it to a, to a level that I was very happy with at the end. And changing crews, even with the mixed crew, would be quite different. But it wasn't really that different. You know, the boat itself, I knew. And so then, I guess there's not many classes, really. That was an option. I've been coaching the NACRAs and I definitely didn't want to sell one of those. And so, you know, the FX was the option. I guess I've always watched the FX from a distance and thought, oh, you know, it looks fun. Um, I think it's obviously a hard boat to sail, but I've never quite thought that the, the female depth is as deep as the guys' class. Obviously, Pain Blair, you know, really raised the level throughout their campaigns. And that men's fleet is just so tight, whereas the women's fleet, I guess it's a much newer class and it still looked like there's some opportunities. And so it was, I guess, something that I thought would be a massive challenge because trying to learn to sail any boat in three years, you know, to an Olympic medal winning standard is, I think, near on impossible, <laughs> which I quite like, but obviously not as extreme as trying to do something like windsurfing or something else, which would be actually impossible. <laughs> So you've teamed up with Molly Meach, who just happens to be one of the world's best female crews. So how did that come about? And I guess how significant is it that um, considering your relative inexperience in the boat, you've gone, you've teamed up with her? Yeah, so I mean, obviously, as soon as I started thinking about the FX, you know, I had a little list of, of crews. And I mean, let's be honest, there's not many crews in New Zealand. And there was one massive standout. And obviously, I, I know Molly. I've known Molly for a long time, and I really respect her and think she's pretty incredible in the boat. And so she was obviously tough on my list, but that wasn't really, you know, my choice. I was just waiting to see what she wanted to do. And obviously, she was still sailing with Alex and seeing what they wanted to do after the games. So it was a lot of patience and sort of trying to just sit back and, and leave that aspect for a while and learn how to sail the boat myself which anyone that knows me I'm not the most patient person so that was a pretty good challenge but yeah I just thought if Molly was going to do this with me then I needed to put in the work before she hopped on the boat you know she doesn't want to go do all those silly capsizes when you're learning she's been there and done that and so I just sort of set myself an aim of, of getting in the boat for a few months and getting to a level where I thought I could actually get around a course and, you know, maybe hopefully by that stage she'd figured out what she wanted to do. And, you know, maybe just perhaps she'd be curious about the idea of sailing with me. And, you know, as it turned out, it was, it actually, it fit in really well. And, yeah, I'm just, I'm just so happy she actually wanted to do it because I really didn't have much other options or any other options. So I'm guessing that's accelerating your learning to have someone, you know, like her alongside you. Yeah. And, I mean, I, didn't quite fully realise just how good she was until she came out for one session um, just when I was training late last year and just did a few laps and I was just like, oh, wow, okay, okay, so that's what a, that's what a world-class crew is like. It makes me look so good. And, yeah, I, I think I just realised then, I was like, okay, that there's a massive difference, you know, between I've been sailing with a bunch of young guys and just different people to get my hours up, but jumping on with a world-level crew was, was pretty incredible. And I figured out pretty quick that she'd, you know, have a lot to teach me and she would have 
no hesitation in telling me how to do things, which I, I really enjoy. I mean, I'm, I'm just lucky that I actually have someone on the boat who is coaching me through things. And I don't think you can accelerate the learning process any more quickly than that. So how has training been going? Yeah, I've really been enjoying the training. I think I'm quite impatient. I want to be better quicker. I think we're quite, we have to be quite careful to remember that, you know, even now we're only about two months in sailing together and I'm about five months in the FX full stop. So it, it is really early days and not sort of getting too hung up on, I guess, mistakes I'm making or, you know, I want to sail the boat well enough that she doesn't have to tell me how to do anything. But that's obviously going to be a little while away. And you know, if I get the occasional manoeuvre that she's happy with, then, you know, I, I take those wins. And I think we're definitely progressing well. But it, it is, you know, it's a long game. We're playing this as, you know, as the short time we have, but we've still got to pace ourselves and just, you know, chip away at what we need to work on. But, I mean, it is great fun. It's, it's so refreshing. It's so much fun to be learning something new. And, I mean, yeah, enjoy spending every day on the water with Molly. So you haven't quite yet dipped your toes in the international waters, but you've had a couple of regattas back home. Um, you started off with the 49er FX National Champs, and then you took out the 49er FX at the Ocean Bridge NZL Sailing Regatta. Just talk to me, I guess, about what those two regattas were like. Yeah, it was, it was pretty strange to get back into actual racing. I mean, I know Europe's going to be a bit of a jump in the deep end, but even you know New Zealand just starting off racing, the Nationals was really windy. And obviously the FX is a boat where you get pretty punished if you haven't quite nailed your boat handling. And that was sort of, you know, that regatta, I was still trying to sail around the course rather than race. So it was it was pretty tough. And then Ocean Bridge was sort of light to moderate breeze. And, you know, in those conditions, I think we're pretty happy that we can actually race well. And so it was, it was cool to see that, you know, when we, when we weren't worried about the sailing, we were actually racing that, I could still remember how to race and Molly was happy enough to let me do my thing tactically and, and place the boat and just sort of help me through everything. So it was a really good learning curve and I guess looking forward to doing a lot more racing, but still just got a lot to tick off in terms of the, the sailing and boat handling sides of it. Just Maybe just talk to us a little bit more about how different skiff sailing is compared to the 470. Yeah, I think what's interesting when you sail different boats is I guess the similarities probably come to me first. Like there are so many things in every boat that are the same, you know, be it, I mean, I'm sailing all sorts of things at the moment. I just did the Moth Nationals on the weekend and that's, you know, you're doing 19, 20 knots upwind and yet the same rules all still apply. And I think the FX has given me a very good base in terms of strategy and tactics and that boat on course, boat on boat positioning, because obviously the 470 and the breeze, you actually sail it a bit more like a skiff in terms of minimal manoeuvres. And in the light to moderate, they're actually quite similar in terms of, you know, how you race. And there's a lot of sort of finer details, which are quite different in the skiff. And obviously just the me getting across the boat and all the manoeuvres and the, the, I guess in the 470, you can really refine your manoeuvres to be every manoeuvre is perfect. And I guess what I'm learning in the FX is have every manoeuvre pretty good is, is all I need to aim for. Because as long as you're sort of still trucking in the right direction and you're fast, it's just it's a different a different level, I guess, we're aiming for. Because there is just so much more. It's such a it's a much harder boat to actually sail perfectly. 
which is a really cool challenge. But at least when it comes to the racing, I am finding it kind of similar with a few sort of little tweaks. You sound quite energised. You know, you sound like you're a, a new student who's getting their teeth into a whole lot of new work. And I'm guessing you're learning lots of new skills, but not just on the water, but potentially off it as well, even things like boat setup and maintenance and the like. Yeah, I mean, I, I love learning. I think that's what's been really clear to me the last sort of five years outside of sailing is that when I've been most sort of enthusiastic and energised and it's when I'm learning something new. And, I mean, sailing, there's so much to learn. And so jumping into a new boat, there's so much to learn. And, you know, we're lucky enough at the moment with the effects of there's actually a new mast and new sails. So there's learning a new rig as well as learning how to sail a boat. And so it's a great time to hop on the class. You know, I don't have any sort of hangover settings or, or ways of sailing the boat from what it was before. I can come in pretty fresh. And I feel the 470 has actually set me up pretty well in terms of how you set up a boat. Because honestly, the 470 is a slow boat, but it's really hard to set up. It's a very tweaky, delicate sort of class. And I think relative, I'm actually finding the FX easier in terms of how you manipulate the sail shape and how you get it to feel like you want it to feel. But yeah, I'm, I am definitely loving it. Oh, that's great. So the, there might be an expectation out there that you'll both immediately be near the front of the fleet, you know, given the pedigree of the pair of you. What about your own expectations? What are they like? I think yeah, expectations are something we're probably going to battle with a little bit because we're obviously both highly competitive people. And, you know, we only want to do things perfectly or as, as close to perfect as possible. But I think we're also pretty realistic that, you know, I've been in the boat five months and we could be racing people who've been in the boat for, for nine years. So, I mean, Molly's obviously been there for a long time. She's sailed the boat as long as anyone. But it's still going to be a learning curve. And I think at this stage, you know, we're just, as long as we see that we're improving and that we have sort of some flashes of brilliance, then we're pretty happy. But, yeah, we're definitely aware it's going to take a little while to actually be, you know, at the front of the fleet where we want to be. But we just don't know. I guess we're going to find out in a few weeks. Yeah. So you're potentially going to race uh, your first Olymp Olympic classes regatta in years at the end of the month. How strange will that be, especially as you've been on the other side for the last five years as a coach? Yeah, back to racing. I think I think we're both going to be a little bit nervous going into it. Just that, you know, it had to be a long time for me since I've raced. And I've watched it all. And you definitely see a different side when you're coaching. But actually, you know, being out there, being on the start line, making sure the brain's in that right space to just go racing. And, yeah, I, I don't know really how it's going to feel to them out there, but I think it's going to be pretty good fun. I mean, we have a good time on the water anyway. So as long as we can keep laughing and keep having a good time and obviously the – the seriousness and our approach to racing will always be there. But we've just got to make sure we, you know, try to keep it a little bit lighthearted because it is going to be, there's going to be some entertaining moments, I think. You know, we'll be doing a bit of weird stuff on the boat, I'm sure. So what's it going to take for you and Molly to win a medal at the Paris Olympics? Yeah, I mean, it, it is going to be a long stretch, you know. It's it's three years from, from nothing to, to trying to be at the top. So... I mean, we've got a pretty good plan, we think, and it's 
it's just going to take a lot of hours and a lot of sort of building up how we sail the boat so that that can be natural and we can actually just race and make the right decisions when we need to make them. You know, I mean, I know what it takes to win a medal and so does Molly. And I think together, you know, we can definitely get there. It's just going to be that timed run aspect of it, which I think makes it sort of extra interesting. But obviously we wouldn't be doing this if we didn't think it was possible. So, yeah, is there is there enough time? Because it is that much shorter Olympic cycle on the back of that one-year delay to, to the Tokyo Olympics. Yeah, I mean, obviously we think there is enough time. We think it's going to be tight, but, but it's doable. And I know for myself, like, personally, learning new things, you know, when I start something new, it just feels impossible. I mean, I remember learning to sell a moth or to wing foil, sort of really skill-based sports that when I first started the first few weeks, you're going, this is impossible. Like, there's no way I'll ever be able to do this. And you look back and a, a year later and you're just, you know, not even thinking about it anymore. You know, it's natural. Your instincts, your, your body just does what it needs to do. And so I, I guess I have that faith that given enough hours and enough sort of intention in our training that we can actually get to that stage sooner than than most people can and I mean also the fact that Molly's already there you know it's only half the boat that has to up the game really and then it's just working out exactly how we work together but that's what's been really cool so far is that we, we do seem to you know gel really well and we have a lot of the same ways of operating and I think really helpfully I think um, her and Alex actually had talked to Polly and I quite a lot in the past and a lot of the ways they organised themselves when they raced and even some of the routines were quite similar to what Polly and I did. So there's a lot of sort of easy crossover. So what does the you know your, the rest of year year look like? Because I'm under the impression that you're going to be overseas now for, for many months. Yeah, so I guess that's maybe a little bit of a hangover from the post-COVID, you know, travel lockdowns. But as soon as we started looking at this year, we just thought, you know, we need to be we need to be training with boats. We need to be at the Olympic venue. We need to be able to do the hours and do quality hours. And so the idea of sort of traveling backwards and forwards from New Zealand just didn't really seem like the best use of time. So I guess for this year, we're sort of leaving leaving in April and we'll be back in October as a plan at the moment and basically basing ourselves in Marseille at sort of the Olympic venue and just doing blocks of training all the way through and then off to regattas, sort of where they fit, but basically moving to, I guess, more like the Europeans do that real Euro-based campaign, just because, you know, we, we can't really, we can't afford to lose a week here and there, travelling backwards and forwards, and coming back to New Zealand to sail with, you know, no one in the middle of winter. And you've got a little bit of live ocean racing on the side. Yeah, we're very lucky that we've managed to fit in a few extra events as well, which I think will just help keep us fresh. You know, it, it can be a bit of a grind, I think, the Olympic circuit and just, you know, the sailing that same boat the whole time. And so I think a little bit of that ETF in the middle with the other girls is going to be yeah, pretty invigorating, I think. It's good to do something different. Now, I know you travelled a little as a coach, but have you sort of missed that touring lifestyle that comes with Olympic campaigning? Yeah, I guess that's probably what I enjoyed about the coaching as well, is that I fully, I lived that lifestyle again. You know, coaching is a lot like sailing, just a bit less stressful, and you get paid. So <laughs> it's actually quite a nice change. <laughs> but, you know, when you're coaching, you do spend a lot of, or I spend a lot of my time sitting in the coach boat going, oh, they're quite nice to be on that boat. 
So, no, I'm very, very happy to be doing it on the inside again. And, yeah, I say I still love the travelling. Do you think the Olympic sailing landscape has changed at all in those five years that you've been out as an athlete? Yeah, that's an interesting question. I mean, some of the classes have changed. A lot of the people have changed. A lot of the people remain the same. But, yeah, I'm not sure it has changed that much. I mean, I guess the levels are always creeping up and the sort of professionalism aspect of Olympic sailing, you know, full stop, I think, is always on the up. And the fact that a lot of people are doing a lot of different sailing now as well, you know, with, with GP or with sort of moths or add-on, you know, this ETF, this sort of thing is not something we really had in the past. So I think you can be a much more rounded sailor these days, and I think you sort of need to be. I think just the single focus... I think it's easy to get a bit stuck in a corner. So, yeah, but I probably don't know that well enough. I can tell you that after a year of being back on the circuit. Hmm. Well, we, we sort of touched on a little bit about your, your coaching life, and I just wanted to expand a little bit more on that because you ended up coaching New Zealand's top NACRA 17 pair, Michael Wilkins and Erica Dawson, to the, the Tokyo Olympics. Yeah, what got you into coaching? Because in another blog post, you said you had no interest in coaching. And, and so what was that experience like for you? Yeah, I think it's a definitely a typical sailor response. I do remember saying that. And I remember other coaches I know saying that as well. <laughs> so it's definitely something when you're a sailor, you're like, oh, no, I don't want to be coaching. Definitely not. But I think once you're out of the sport for a little while, I mean, I, I guess I just I missed it. I missed being around it. And I missed having an outlet for for all those years of knowledge and experience I had. I felt like it was sort of going to waste. And coaching was sort of one of the well only real ideas I had for how I could give back and how I could, you know, try to help some of the young sailors coming through. And I think I think I'd only been working full time in the office for about six months by the time I started reaching out to Yacht in New Zealand and asking, you know, oh, is there anything I could do is there any coaching and and I, I ended up doing some 470 coaching straight away and then sort of found my way into the NACRA program. So it was a bit of a it was a bit of a journey. But yeah, I think it was a great thing to have done. And I mean I definitely I definitely think actually all sailors should do some coaching. You just you learn so much by watching. And that you also realise how much as a sailor, you know, you have your blinkers on and you just get stuck down this path and you sort of lose track of I guess, reality and perspective. And yeah, hopefully I can keep those things over the next few months. So, so what was your approach or what was your philosophy with, with Micah and Erica? Yeah, I, I guess we the way we coach is often the way we have been coached or what we liked about the coaches we've had. And I guess I saw myself as very much a supporting role or an enabling role. You know, I would... I'll do anything to help them and to make sure they could, you know, achieve their goals and the different teams I've worked with, there was different requirements, but often sort of keeping that overview of the whole campaign and a little bit of herding cats along the way, it sometimes feels like, just trying to make sure that they're going along the right path and not getting, you know, running away in crazy directions. And obviously Mike and Erica were a very young team and that was their first Olympics, so it was... Yeah, it was a big, it was a big jump for them, and it was a very late selection. It was an extremely com- compressed campaign, and 
so yeah i thought i was able to use a lot of my experience to try to shortcut some of those learnings obviously offset by the fact that i you know i don't know the necro that well i've obviously watched a lot of necro now and i have a pretty good idea but that technical aspect is probably not my strong point as much so just knowing where i could add value and where we had to get other people in to sort of add different pieces that i couldn't do you see it as uh something that you'll go back to once you maybe hang up the booties and, and wetsuit again i think i think that that question is always a funny one because while you're sailing you're, you're just straight away you're like oh no i don't think i'd be doing any coaching but i, I know better than to say that <laughs> so i uh, i don't know what all what i want to do after this i guess i'm quite happy at the moment to just be living with what's now and we'll sort of see what comes up in the future i guess that's the cool thing i've found or, or what i've realized over the last five years as well is that i don't always need a full plan that things will actually pop up and if it seems like the right thing to do then i think it is the right thing to do as you say there's um there's a lot going on at the moment and who knows what will happen next um how do you think i guess your experiences in that coach boat will help you now as a sailor again yeah i'm, I'm quite curious to see what i guess what sticks with me i'm still very much in the learning the boat phase but i think once we start racing it's going to be interesting to see if i can keep that perspective because i think as a coach you have a lot more overview sort of of what the fleet's doing of of what you would do like you get a lot less wrapped up i think in the emotional side of it whereas when you're sailing you're so in it that you can get a little bit blinded i mean it's, i think it's interesting for whoever coaches me now as well because <laughs> i probably i expect different things from a coach or i i know what it's like to be on that side of the fence too so i think i've probably always been a little bit difficult to coach i don't know if it's made me more or less difficult but i think we're going to find out but um <laughs> I was going to ask you that, actually. Do you think you'll be more coachable now, or do you think you'll question things more? I think it's actually a bit of both. I don't think it's one without the other. I think I have a lot of trust in a coach because I know when you're coaching, the only reason you're saying something is because you want to help. You know, And that's something hard as a coach when you are trying to give feedback and a sailor sort of just bites it off. Or, and I know I've been like that in the past. So I'm like, oh, jeez. <laughs> I know I can be a bit painful because I can get quite stuck on some topic. So I would hope that I'm a little bit more open, or at least I know that I can have that capability of just disregarding information, whereas, yeah, needing to stay a little bit more open and try things before I sort of shut it down. So yeah, hopefully a little bit more respect of what a coach actually sees. So what I'll do is I'll just take that clip and send it to your coach so that um, <laughs> they can play it to you anytime you start questioning things too much. Oh, no, he loves questions. It's good. <laughs> now, coaching wasn't the only thing you did over those five years out uh, of the high-performance sailing scene. You um, initially started working for Ernst & Young and did that intermittently for some time. Just tell me what your role was there and what it was like for you to be doing an office job. Yeah, that was a absolute jump on the deep end for me. You know, I'd never been into an office basically until my first day. So it was all quite overwhelming, you know, work outfits and offices and being inside and air conditioning all day and sitting in a computer. Definitely pretty different. Um, but I was, I was definitely lucky enough there to have a really good bunch of people around and 
EY was incredibly helpful. You know, it's some of the people there, there's some extremely smart people and the people who really know their fields better than anyone. And so it was it was an opportunity to learn a lot and I think I I've definitely learned a lot around how business operate and just seeing things from a different perspective. I, I definitely enjoyed I enjoyed a lot of it, but I think pretty quickly I do I did find myself looking out the window a lot. You know, we had pretty good views of of the of the sea out the window and I would just often be looking out and going, Oh, it's quite good, you know, could be out there sailing, could be out there winging, could be out there doing something. I definitely found that part hard. I've definitely realised through it that, you know, me being inside in an office every day is just probably not the right thing for me. Like I, I'm a lot happier outside and I'm a lot happier having different sort of stimuluses and different experiences. You know, that, that routine, that, I mean, a lot of people really enjoy that routine of just you go to work every day, you come home, you have your weekends, you have your evenings, whereas I guess I sort of, I wanted more and I've obviously been spoiled through years of Olympic sailing that when it is a day that looks like perfect surf, you probably go for a surf in the morning and then you go sailing or, you know, you have a lot more freedom and flexibility and you sort of run things on your own schedule and you still do all the work and you, you put in the hours, but it's a lot freer. Well, if anyone follows your Instagram account, they can see that you do really sit still, do you? You've got, if you're not sailing or coaching, you're either stand-up paddleboarding or winging or moth sailing um can anybody ever get time with you to sit down and chat oh, i've always got time for people as long as it fits around the activities but <laughs> no that's definitely I, I definitely do tend to overdo it a little i get a bit excited by my activities um but that's yeah i guess that's just a part of me <laughs> i've always been like that and now nowadays there's just so many more fun things to do you know when i was starting the 470 the whole foiling thing hadn't really kicked off and yeah, it's much more exciting these days. But you do have time to to join the World Sailing Athletes Commission, which you did in 2016. And last November, I think it was, you took over as chair of the committee. Firstly, just what does the commission do and what are you trying to achieve in your time as chair? Yeah, so World Sailing Athletes Commission was, I didn't really know what it was, to be honest, when I, when I signed up. I thought it would you know, you, you go to the meetings and you're sort of involved in some of the decision-making. Um, but I think as I've been there for longer, I understand, you know, the background a lot more. And probably the longer I've been there, the more I think it is hugely important and it's hugely undervalued. You know, I, I think that a lot, of, a lot of sailors, well, we're just so busy sailing when you're an athlete. You sort of decisions get made about events, about classes, about formats, anything like this, and sailors complain about it, but they don't generally speak up, and they often haven't been involved with the process. And I guess that's for me what I think is so important is that that at every discussion there is someone representing an athlete point of view, and yeah, that that is the basic outline of the Athletes Commission is that there's seven of us, seven to eight, it depends on the year, who were at the meetings, were involved in the committees, were involved in the working parties. And in, in my role as chair, I'm one of the World Sailing board members. So I'm sort of involved in the decisions 
at world sailing at that top level and then it gives me the opportunity to to have that say and have input and to represent the views of athletes whereas or else you know there's a lot of well-meaning people but they are often a lot older and have not been involved in sort of top level sailing for years and I know they always mean well but a lot of the decisions that get made you know to, to any sail on the boat park they would just not understand any of it so it's it's quite a it's a really interesting role it is kind of tough because I find it very hard to get feedback from athletes. I mean, we've actually got a few members of the Athletes Commission in Palmer at the moment, and they are sort of chasing up, chasing up a few issues and trying to get the feel of what you know what we need to be pushing because ultimately we are just there to to represent the view of athletes. But obviously, that's not as simple as it sounds because the view of someone 15 coming through the classes as opposed to someone like my age who's been around it for a long time can be quite different and it's how we sort of balance out what's good for the sailors now but also what the sport needs to be doing in the long term to make sure that for the young ones coming through now you know the sport they inherit is in a far better place. So are you comfortable not only sitting on committees like this but also leading them? Yeah I guess anyone that knows me is probably aware that I, I can be outspoken and I'm not afraid to to ruffle feathers and to, to make a point. And I think that helps me in this and that I'm okay to stand up in a room of, you know, 50, 60 year olds <laughs> who've been around the sport a long time and, and make a clear point because I think I have to, you know, that, that's my role. And if no one else is going to do that, then I'm happy to. And I'm never going to be able to make everyone happy. I think that's what you learn quite early on in the sort of governance areas is that, you know, every decision has pluses and minuses or else it would be a really easy one. And that's, I guess, just that's a part of being in this role. And I've definitely found that hard, but I guess someone's sort of got to do it. So you mentioned that you've been around the scene for, for quite a while um, in both the sailing and now in a sort of a committee um, basis. Have you seen an increase in the voice of athletes? And do you think, you know, organisations are listening more than they used to? I think it's a much bigger talking point these days. And a lot of that's been brought on sort of around the wellness space. I know in New Zealand that's definitely the case. And, and even internationally, there's much more awareness around looking after athletes. Um, but in terms of an athlete voice perspective, I don't think that much has actually changed. I know, I mean, all of the international federations have sort of an athletes commission of some form like that they're required to. And I know IOC pushes a lot in this area, but I don't know if, if many of them have actually nailed how you get the thoughts of the wider groups into the athletes commission. Because even for us in the athletes commission, the issue we have is that you know, we're, we're all a bunch of Olympic sailors. The Athletic Commission Charter is means that we're made up of Olympic sailors and one Paralympian. And so we're obviously not representative of any of the special events, you know, America's Cup, Sail GP, offshore, keelboating. Like, we, we are not representing a large portion of sailing. And I think that's one of the things that we need to start trying to work through is how do we get more voice from 
the rest of sailing, not just Olympic sailing. So you mentioned that that well-being sort of um, piece that's going on in New Zealand, but you know one thing that you spoke up about um, what in the last couple of years was the issues you've you had with your health between the 2012 and 2016 Olympics. Can you just elaborate a bit more about uh, what was going on? Yeah, it was. I guess the, it was something that I never really cottoned on to until probably a year and a half after I stopped sailing was the fact that I'd probably just been under eating for three, four years. You know, what I considered normal was actually very unhealthy. And I think it took a it took a doctor saying, you eat like a 50-year-old a man with a heart disease and yet you're exercising every day. Like, your health is never going to change while you're doing this. And I, I just always thought that, you know, I just I had a lot of sinus issues. I had a lot of stomach issues. And I just, you keep being diagnosed with different things. And I never really had any answers. But, yeah, that was the first time that I thought, oh, maybe, you know, maybe I'm doing something wrong. And to be honest, the, the 470, it wasn't the 470. It was my own sort of expectations of the, the weight I needed to be to be competitive in the 470 had sort of pushed me into a corner where it was something easily controllable. You know, of all the things in sailing, your weight, your body weight is something you can control and you can focus on far too much, really. And my way of fueling was about not fueling. You know, it was not having protein after exercise. It was not eating enough to make up for the run I'd done or the sailing session. You know, I was in the negative the whole time, and which is obviously over a long period of time, really unhealthy. You know, and I can trace that back to sort of, I think 2013 was the first year where my weight was at a point which now I look at it and I'm like, oh, geez, like what was I thinking? I was probably four, six, six kilos lighter than I am now. And I kept it there for a long time. And in your brain, you know, you have a few good results and you start equating that with with your weight, which obviously it actually does not matter. Like for my sailing now, I'm not fussed a few kilos here and there. I just don't think it's a difference. You know, if you get off the start line, if you get the right shift, if, you, if your technique is good and your brain's sharp, you're in a much better place. But I think for, and it's not, you know, it's not just me who's been there. I know a lot of sailors and a lot of athletes who end up using that aspect as a focus point. And it's, it's just very easy to control or to focus a lot of your effort on controlling that. But I think it's, it has been spoken about a lot more in the last few years, like the, I guess, Red S syndrome, which is relative energy deficiency syndrome, which affects a lot of women and men too. But I guess for women, it's it's quite obvious in terms of your monthly cycle when, when you lose it. And so it's, yeah, it's a lot more awareness these days. And I mean, I have, I've had some apologies from some of the people I worked with in those four years who are just sorry that they sort of missed what I was doing or what I was going through but you know it's it's one of the hard parts about as an athlete if you're performing I think that everyone just still assumes that oh but you you must be pretty okay then if you're still performing whereas I know for me how I am health-wise or mentally will not have an aspect on how I'm performing I, I can perform anyway but just one of those methods of performing has a, a much higher consequence in the long term 
So how serious were some of these issues, or how distressing, I guess, were, were some of these times um, over those three or four years? Yeah, I think the worst, well, in terms of my stomach, the worst I got was there was, you know, weeks at a time where six out of seven days, I was just, my stomach I was just in pain. I remember in Miami, I think we won the event that year, but I remember just being curled up on my bed in like the fetal position, just like, oh, my stomach. And Nathan and Polly like, you okay? I'm like, yeah, yeah, no, I'll be fine. I'll be fine. And I could, I was eating, I guess my stomach wasn't being fed enough, so I didn't want food. That's what it felt like. So I was just eating tiny amounts because whenever I ate something, I felt terrible. And yeah, I think that was probably one of the lowest points was just the constant pain and discomfort of it while still sort of trying to, well, still racing full time. Still, I think I did a few marathons at that time just because I don't know why, because I felt like it. And, you know, still running extremely high training loads, but just not eating. Yeah, not, not very comfortable. And I mean, my stomach has taken years, and I think I still have moments where if I don't eat enough for a day or two, it'll catch up with me for a week, a week or two after. So I do have to be a lot more careful than if I hadn't sort of put my body through that stress in the past. Because you even had like surgeries and, and invasive tests, I think, to try to understand, you know, what was going on. Did you sort of have, have concerns that it could be something a little bit more, you know, quite serious? Um, I mean, I had sinus surgery because I had sort of constant sinus infections, which I think when I look at it now, it's, well, I mean, no wonder because I was just down on energy the whole time. So my body as a whole was battling. And obviously I had all the tests on my stomach, like colonoscopy, gastroscopy, all of those, and they could never find anything other than, oh, it's a bit inflamed or it's a bit, doesn't look happy, but there's nothing wrong. Uh, I guess those, they probably gave me more, well, I mean, I wasn't so worried after all the tests because at least there was nothing actually wrong, but extremely frustrating in the fact that there was nothing wrong and yet I was still feeling that way and I was still sort of just wasn't getting better. And I, yeah, I just didn't realise how long it would take. And I think that's why, you know, earlier, earlier today you asked why in 2019, you know, I had no interest in campaigning and I was still in that recovery phase. You know, that was three years on from Rio. And I don't think it was until 2020 that I started turning a bit of a corner in terms of energy and, and getting my body back to sort of, you know, where it was, albeit a bit older, <laughs> but, you know, back into a state where I, I can do things again. So how did it get to the point where the GP who, who mentioned that you were eating like a 50-year-old with a heart condition, you know, how did, how did that discovery come about to, to allow you to turn that corner? Yeah, so it was actually, um, it was around trying to figure out my menstrual cycle. Like I hadn't gone back to a normal cycle. I was all over the show, long, short, just nothing consistent. And so I guess I, I went through a bunch of checks again you know, everything checked and eventually they're like, there's nothing wrong with you. And she was the last one that my GP sent me to. And I think she's worked with a few athletes and so she she sort of knew what she was looking for. And I'm, I'm sort of guessing my GP knew as well and that's why she sent me there. But I needed to hear it from someone who'd worked with a bunch of athletes and had seen sort of the same symptoms and the same, the same fact of nothing actually being wrong. But this one factor like you're just not eating enough and I think it was it was a week before I think New Zealand went into lockdown so I remember it pretty vividly but that was 
definitely a turning point. Like I think I, I went home and bought some chocolate on the way home. She's like, you need to start eating ice cream. You need to start eating some chocolate. You need to start eating, you know, high energy foods. And not all the time, obviously, but you can't just have salads and, you know, you, you can't be eating like that anymore. Not if you want to do as much exercise as you do. And I guess that I sort of tried to use that as a, a turning point in that, I mean, I've always worn a heart rate watch and I've always tracked, you know, the exercise I'm doing, but trying to use that as a aim for what I needed to eat. Whereas in the past, I'd use that as an aim for what I didn't need to eat. And so then it was going, oh, you know, geez, I've just done, done a run that's 600 calories. I've got to eat that as well as everything else. And when you started doing that, I realized like just how much food I had to be eating. And it probably double what I was eating before. You know, it's actually quite hard to eat enough. I think when you're an active person, but it was, yeah, it was quite a, quite a moment of discovery. Mm. Well, certainly when you say eat enough for an active person, well, an active person like you, who's on, uh, you know, 10 times as active as the, as probably a normal person. Do, do you think attitudes are improving in this area? Because, you know, a study a couple of years ago found that three quarters of New Zealand's top female athletes felt elite sport was putting them under pressure to look a certain way. I mean, I, I think when it comes to the, the look aspect, I don't think anything really changes. I mean, I, I definitely worry. You worry about the younger girls coming through. I mean, I came through without, you know, Instagram and Facebook and all that stuff. That's That all came through when I was a bit older. I know what I'm looking at and I know what's realistic. Whereas I think there's, and I've heard this in other sailors even, you know, there's an expectation to look athletic. And, and generally that's thin, you know, and, and when you are, doing the amount of sort of energy expenditure that we do, you're, actually, you're better off to not be really thin because then you've got no reserves and you just, you can't be as strong. You know, you're not as resilient. And so I, yeah, I, I don't think that's changed yet. I think the fact that it is now part of discussion and it's now openly spoken about is a really good step. And I know yachting, you know, has had, we've had some good little sort of sit downs with some of the younger sailors coming through and just sharing some experiences and, trying to make it something that's talked about. So I think that was a problem when I came through. None of this was talked about. I mean, there wasn't even the awareness of a lot of these sort of conditions. So well, I, I think it all it all bodes well for the future, but I'm sure there'll be many more athletes who get sort of stuck down that track because it's a very easy one to fall down. So is this something that you're bringing to the table, you know, that world sailing level? Yeah, world sailing is sort of, Alongside IOC, there, there is quite a push around athlete welfare and a lot of that's around the, the mental aspects, but also physical. But, but I actually think it, it's not so much a world sailing issue. I think the, it, sort of, it sits with your national federations and your national sporting bodies because they're the ones who have, who have the touch points every day. You know, when, I, when you come into the system in New Zealand and high performance sport, it you know, I, I came in when I was 16, 17, and none of this stuff existed back then. You know, if I think coming in now with what they're learning and how they're being guided to the process, I think they've all got a much better, ch- a much better chance of, you know, being informed and, and not sort of making the same mistakes. But I think it's something that has to keep being pushed. And I look at, you know, I look at the Opti in New Zealand and some of that junior sailing, and you see from there, you see where the issues start because, you know, yachting is a sport where weight is talked about a lot and it's very different to other sports. You know, people are shocked when, I mean, someone will ask me my weight and I'll just, oh yeah, yeah, it does this. 
Whereas people are amazed that you just talk about your weight like that. Like it's not normal <laughs> in sort of normal society or in other sports. And I know within junior yachting, you know, weight is discussed a lot. And a lot of our junior classes have sort of target weights, which are entirely unrealistic for generally for females. Like if I came through the Optimus right now, I think I was 53 kilo when I sailed an Opti. And that just wouldn't work now. You know, they're all little 35, 40 kilo kids. And that's fine for other guys who haven't grown yet. But, you know, a lot of the girls are too big. And I mean, even a lot of the guys, you know, you hear about kids in the youth classes already being so careful with what they eat and trying to keep their weights down. And it's just, it's, yeah, it's really hard habits to kick off that young. I think they get harder and harder to break as you get older. Yeah, well, there's certainly important conversations to have. So, um, look, I, I wish you well with your work at World Sailing, but also getting back out in the water because um, I, for one, will certainly be taking a keen interest over your progress in the coming weeks and months. Um, before I let you go, though, because uh, we're, we're recording this uh, the day before you head out from New Zealand to head to Europe, so I know you've got a lot on your schedule agenda for today but uh, just before you go i need to get this story of your worst wipeout ever now you've obviously already told me one from episode two um so perhaps have you got one from your say uh introduction to 49er fx sailing yeah i was actually thinking of one um oh, was a few months back i went out for a sunday tour bay racing in the fx and it's probably i don't know 20 20 knots norice I went out with Andre, who I'd been sailing for 70 a bit with, and I yeah, went up wind, all good, fair away, happy going downwind. And I guess I didn't realise that you had to like try to not pitch pole. I just thought it wouldn't pitch pole. But I think Andre stepped forward to get something off the wing, and we just went straight down the wave, like absolute full bury the bow. I swung around, hit the four stay. He swung so far forward that the mast actually hit him on its way down. So I had to go in. <laughs> I think I nearly knocked him out. And, yeah, that was my intro to, to 49er sailing downwind. I've since realised that you actually do use the kite and the steering to keep the boat from pitch bowling. But that was very much a, a 470 helm going for an FX sail, not quite realising that there's just no way out of some of those. So, yeah, I did have a bad habit of hitting people with my mast early on. I'm guessing Molly's probably quite thankful that uh, all of those early mistakes were made with other people and, and she's got the, the the improved version of Joello. Yes, no, Mo Molly's a lot better at keeping me up right down when... <laughs> well, um, as I say, wish you all the best over the next few months. Um, but thanks again for your time today and um, thanks for joining us on Broadreach Radio. No worries, thanks for having me. Well, that's it for another episode of Broadreach Radio. Thanks for tuning in. We'd really appreciate all the feedback we've received over the last couple of years, as well as those who have shared the podcast on social media. Feel free to drop me a line at michaelb at yachtingnz.org.nz if you've got any feedback or suggestions. Otherwise, look out for the next podcast in a couple of weeks. 